Hey guys, I have a question for you. How do you spread abundance? This year, Joe and I are spreading even more abundance by giving out insights on money, wealth strategies, and resources in our current newsletter, Creating Abundance in 52 Weeks, that we want to share with you for free. So sign up right now as you're listening to this episode on our website at www.abundantculture.co. That's .co slash newsletter, www.abundantculture.co slash newsletter. Don't let delay get in the way of your abundant year. Now, back to the episode. Welcome back to Abundant Culture Podcast. Where we dissect the mindsets and tactics of the true beast of business. People like Gary V, Grant Cardone, and Warren Buffett. All to create a blueprint to experience life more abundantly. Although the tax deadline was recently pushed back to July 15th, you should still be taking this time to learn, organize, and strategize your taxes. And this week, we're giving you the tools to strategize tax planning with your tax professional. Throughout the episode, we're covering how you can make more and save more by having a nonprofit, the different types of business entities, new tax law updates, and so much more. So get ready to listen to and learn from our good friend, and our accountant, Stephen Hamilton. Hi, Steve, and thank you again for coming on to the Abundant Culture Podcast. We are super excited to have you today because you are, like, so knowledgeable in your field, and that's why we ask you, like, so many questions all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into, like, all the tax side of things, Um, We want to know, like, your story. Why did you get into business? How did you get into business? That's actually a great question. Um, I've always had this fascination around finance. So my family's always been self-employed. I can tell you the stories of all all their different businesses, et cetera. But um, I grew up kind of at the foot of a large, very large business. And, And... was just always stayed kind of exciting. So as I got into high school, um, I ended up taking a couple of accounting classes. And my mother one day says to me, hey, I got this advertisement for, of all things, H&R Block's income tax class. So I'm a senior in high school. She gets this advertisement and says, you know, Stephen, you might like this, especially because you were thinking about majoring in accounting. And everybody would ever look at me, you seem like a marketing and sales kind of guy. And it goes hand in hand. Um, being a business owner, et cetera. So it was just kind of a natural progression that, you know, this course sounds fun. You know, there's, there's a lot of gray area things to learn and you get to talk to people and find out different things that are going on. I get to learn about so many different industries, whether it's a coffee shop or a blueberry farm. I've had IRS audits on blueberry farms, you know, just crazy random items that I would never have necessarily learned about. So my job is always new, um, but I started out, I took blocks tax class and enjoyed it and then finished out, ended up working for them my senior year of high school. Then um, college, I was working at block while going to school and fast forward, I, I just enjoyed tax. So I, I took advantage of every class that they had to offer, certifications, everything else. And finally, uh, I told my boss I wanted a pay raise he forgot the conversation, so I didn't sign the rehire contract. Opened my own practice, and here I am um, seven years later. So life is uh, life is pretty good. I, I wouldn't trade self-employment. I love it. Absolutely. Love it, so. Yeah, you look like you love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. I, I, I get to help people save money. Yeah. You know, that, that's the biggest and most important. Or yes, I get to make money doing it, but I get to help people with what's sometimes their biggest stress out of anything. Um, but my wife and I get to work together too. So that adds into a nice, lovely, uh, lovely aspect of things. Awesome. So uh, this first question is probably going to be a doozy. I know, <laughs> but uh, we just had to ask. And really it's, um, it's about like entities, you know, uh, like that's something that I feel like every uh, new entrepreneur, entrepreneur person uh, kind of really struggles with when they're first getting started. Do I 
start as a S corp, C corp. One thousand percent. Uh, so my question is, is like, what are the different types or the main types? Because there's tons of them. But what are the main types of entities, and what are the differences, uh, the main differences between those, and what is your take on it? Like, what's your favorite, or you know? All right, I'm going to preface it with what should be every accountant's response: is it depends. <laughs> I could spend days and days on this topic as to what you should do, why you should do it, and what, in what situations you should use each. But they're all, all there for different reasons. So the different types of entities. Um, I'm going to start out talking about LLCs. Because um, I think this is a nice disclaimer because everybody immediately thinks LLC. I need to have an LLC, open an LLC, and go from there. Yeah. <sighs> you want to know what an LLC is? What is it? In the eyes of the federal government, your LLC doesn't mean a darn thing. <laughs> it doesn't exist. The IRS does not recognize it. It is considered a disregarded entity. It's a creature of state law. So what happens is it falls either into a default category as a sole proprietorship, meaning I just decided to open up a business. Here I am. I'm a sole proprietor. To if I make a tax election, it can be treated as an S-corp or it can be treated as a C-corp. Now, there's pros and cons to all of the above. Um, it can also be a partnership. So in your case, let's say husband and wife open up an LLC that they both own. It's by default a partnership. Now there's some exceptions to that in community property states, but I'm not going to go into that detail here. Um, so you have sole proprietor, you have S-corp, you have C-corp, and you have a partnership. Those four main items. Sole proprietor, that could be the dog walker, that could be the person who's doing some tutoring, that could be an auto body shop, it could be anything. The main goal, goal and main point is it's somebody who's just opened up a business. So a realtor by default is a sole proprietorship. Mm -hmm. Somebody receiving a 1099, that's the basic in there. An S-Corp, which is one of my least favorite entities of all things, and there's some reasons why. S-Corps, you receive your income two different ways. You receive income as an employee via a W-2, and then you receive distributions on the other side as an owner. And there's a correct balance that we need to have between the two of them. You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary for the work that you're doing. So if you're very passive in the entity, it might not be that much. But if you're very active, you need to be making sure that you're either paying yourself hourly or a flat salary for the year, plus bonus, et cetera. Um, so it might be a bad entity for some people. Then I'm actually going to jump over to partnership. Um, partnership, say husband, wife, or someone with a business partner decides to start flipping properties or open a franchise. It passes through the net profit to that person's income tax return. So it operates very similar to an S corporation, except there's no wage component. Instead of that wage component, there's what's called a guaranteed payment. And that guaranteed payment is what I would equate to a salary or you're getting paid a specified amount for your services. So it operates in the same function, but it all translates through that same method of just distributions. You pay self-employment tax on the guaranteed payments, et cetera. Finally, I'm gonna jump into C-corporations. People seem to hate C-corporations. I love them. They have a lot of great use. Uh, I can offer different benefits that I may not have been able to offer before, such as a medical expense reimbursement plan. So if I have a young couple that gets into a business and I know they have a lot of medical expenses, I'm probably going to use a C-Corp for them because they can pay their medical expenses pre-tax and have the company reimburse them for it. Mm. So I, I know that there's going to be a baby. I know that there's going to be a bunch of, I'm going to jump to a C-Corp is my initial thought. But yeah. it'll fully depend on everything they have going on. There could be business partners, something else that we have to take into account. So there's a variety of different options that we can start to look at. Everybody freaks out about C-Corps and double tax. If you plan it the right way, there will not be a double tax. There's cases where I want a double tax. I know that sounds backwards, but let's say that I'm a doctor making half a million dollars a year or more, and I'm in the 35% or higher bracket. That C-Corp rate is only 21%. I can leave that money in the C-Corp, 
and draw a salary up through that effective tax rate. So I'm not paying any more than 21% at that time. And then later on, I can borrow money, I can loan money back and forth, use it to pay benefits, that type of thing. So I can use it as a long-term planning tool at the same, same route. So C-Corps aren't necessarily as bad as everybody thinks. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the basics of yeah. entities. I mean, there's facts and circumstances on everyone and why you should use individual ones. Um, I use a lot of sole proprietorships. Um, LLC taxes a sole proprietor. I, I shouldn't say that. You won't hear me say LLC very much. I'll usually say sole proprietor, S-Corp, C-Corp, et cetera. But that could be LLC taxes a sole proprietorship or LLC taxes an S-Corp. Right. As I mentioned before, that LLC, the Fed doesn't see it. So it doesn't technically exist. Um, so yeah, our options are literally limitless. I could also talk about nonprofits here. and They're one of my favorite ways to make money. Yeah, I heard you say that before. Mm-hmm. And if you if you want, you can definitely touch on that. Um, we we also uh, started to interview a lot of non-for-profits on Abundant Culture because we started to recognize that, oh, they're businesses too. Like they, <laughs> they pay are. rent, they pay bills. I mean- They are 100% businesses. They have marketing plans. They have finance departments. They have grant writers. They are a business. Yeah. Their goal is to provide a service. And in order to do that, you need to take in an income. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's a business. The key is it just has a charitable purpose. So let's say that you wanted to flip houses. I could tell you how to structure that into a nonprofit. Get out. <laughs> this can be like Get a whole out. episode. <laughs> I could, it could be a whole episode. could totally be a whole episode. So... If you wanted to flip houses, but let's say that you wanted to specifically hire those who might be underprivileged or who need to learn job skills. Yeah. You have an education component. Then you might also have a neighborhood component to beautifying the neighborhood. Especially if you're giving back into education, parks, things like that. Yeah. So yeah, there you very well could turn flipping houses into a nonprofit. That's crazy. That is. I had no freaking clue. So is that and you can draw what... a salary from it? <laughs> Even crazier. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you my favorite example. Um, have you heard of Susan G. Komen for the Cure? You know, breast cancer awareness. Mm-hmm. That was started by Nancy Breaker, Susan's sister, if I remember correctly. The best part about that, do you know she draws over four hundred thousand dollars a year as a salary? <laughs> So oh, as as a not-for-profit, like some of the IRS code, from what I hear, because I don't read it, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, but um, from what I hear, it's it's like a lot of gray area. So I always wonder. It's, it's not very gray. I'm going to be honest. It's really not very gray. I have to have a charitable purpose. So they take a lot of money in bringing awareness to their goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have their PL in front of me at the moment, but you can actually find it. It's public record. Yeah. It's public record. So if you want to include a link to that, let me know and I'll, I'll pull it up. Oh, yeah. um, but it, it's easily acquirable information. The key is are you hitting your charitable purpose? That could be grants. Yeah. That could be providing money to research. That could be bringing awareness to different situations. The options really are endless. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with with the, the salary component that you were talking about, how do you know as a charity what you can actually draw as a salary? Because and aside from that salary, because it's a business, do you also get that um I think in in like S Corps or LLCs it's called like a K one, like as so, an owner? The beautiful right. thing about that. I like to look at a nonprofit as kind of like a C-Corp. Everything's all encompassed. Yeah. So income's not passed through because that income belongs to the nonprofit itself. Okay, yeah. So that nonprofit is going to have its income minus its expenses and have a net revenue. The difference with a nonprofit versus any other entity, that nonprofit is not taxed on that bottom line. And they have to have that money earmarked for something. 
budgets are exceedingly important for a nonprofit. What are we expecting to spend? How much can we retain towards next year's expenses? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it all comes down to budgeting. That's really the big one. I've had nonprofits where I've heard them sit here and say, okay, we need to make sure we spend X amount. I actually had a client who applied for a job at a nonprofit and said, well, I really want to just do this job for the charitable purpose more than anything. I don't need to make $120,000 a year. And the nonprofit says, so, well, we, we have to pay you $120,000. It's a budget item. Oh, so you're saying that, oh, unlike a... So at the end of the year, um, they have to have a plan to... Use that, that profit. They, okay. And if they don't have a plan, then they get taxed on it. Not necessarily. Okay. <laughs> um, as long as it's not an exceedingly large net profit, it's not a profit. But that could go towards benefits. It could go towards a reserve fund. It could go towards any number of different options. Wow. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. It's mind blowing, isn't it? It is. It, it almost made me forget, like, what else we were talking about. <laughs> All right, picture this. What, what's a big charitable purpose you could start an entity for? Um, you could start one for... Educating kids on finance. Oh, I got, I got a better one. Go ahead. Give it to us. Halfway house. I've been hearing a lot about those. Mm -hmm. Fill me in. Typical requirement is that you need to provide a hot meal for dinner and make sure and check in that people are back by their curfew, et cetera. Uh -huh. That's it. Depending on your jurisdiction, but you could open up a nonprofit to operate this halfway house in which you can acquire the real estate at a typically a cheaper mark or potentially get it donated, not pay local property taxes because it's owned by a nonprofit. I remember most churches and schools don't pay property taxes. Mind blown. Yeah, people are probably getting like so many ideas right now just listening to this episode. It's, it's, disclosure, it takes planning. It takes actual planning <laughs> and actual charitable purpose. But yes, it can be drafted in a way for better. And it's funny too, because one of our... Uh, the people that like to partner with us on different uh, like businesses and investments and things of that nature. He's always talking about non-for-profits and I, I hardly ever take them seriously, <laughs> but I have it's to great. start taking them seriously. It's great. And it's perfectly legal. As long as you do have that charitable purpose and you are putting money towards betterment, it's there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely. And, and as far as salaries go, like how how do they don't pay yourself four hundred thousand dollars if you're only bringing in five hundred? Okay. Yeah, that doesn't even make any sense. So is there like a percentage mark that there's like no percentage? It's it's reasonable. It has to be reasonable for what you're doing. You have to be attaining and hitting your charitable purpose. Not only that, but you should you need to have a board. That's one of the big ones. You mm -hmm. need to have a board who's going to decide how much is somebody going to get paid. You know if they're going to pay anything. And make sure that there's not a bunch of problems, embezzlement, et cetera. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. So, oh, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, getting back to just kind of the main topic of entrepreneurship in general, whether it's, I mean, well, in a nonprofit, almost everything's a write off. But what are some common, uh, what are some write offs that any entrepreneur can easily, you know, really tap into or or really utilize when they're starting their That's a great question. The tax code defines deductions that are allowed as ordinary and necessary for a business. Now, obviously your pens, paper, supplies, that type of deal, that's not what you're asking. What you're asking about is what can we do for strategy? Strategy is where we're going to look at our retirement accounts. We're going to look at legal ways for us to put money into investments. So, for example, real estate. Real estate's one of my favorite ones. If you're a small business owner, try to buy the piece of real estate that you're operating your business in. We can accelerate our deductions in that property. We can use it as another way to take money out. There's a bunch of different strategies we can utilize there. 
And it's very smart that you actually say that because uh, we like we look at, you know, buying businesses and things of that nature. And a lot of times, and maybe this is a self-limiting belief that we have, but we always think that it's more advantageous not to own the real estate because of the price tag, but it sounds like it's more advantageous. I'd go the other way. I would definitely go the other way. I want to own the real estate. I don't want to pay rent. Rent is a hundred percent lost expense. At least if I'm paying part of a mortgage, I'm building up that long-term wealth. Just like you buy rentals, right? Yeah, for right, sure. So why do you buy a rental? Uh, equity and cash flow. Right, but what's that tenant doing for you? They're paying down the mortgage. Over time. Same concept in a business. I just have two components. I have my business that I'm hoping to make money on. Business that I'm hoping to make money on. And then I have the real estate that I'm hoping to make money on. Same thing. Building here. I bought my building. Another thing we really wanted to touch on because we blow people's minds every time we say this and I'm not even an accountant. So I, I just tell <laughs> them what I heard, honestly. Um, but can you talk about the process of utilizing child labor legally? <laughs> <laughs> I am all for utilizing child labor. Uh, <laughs> as long as it's your own child. Um, exactly. That's the disclaimer on that one. Put that in big gold letters for me. Right, out of that. Utilizing your own children for labor. I actually just got them talking to somebody about this earlier. Um, what we can do is, whether it's our rental property, our small business, we can pay our kids to help out. And that's usually exempt from most child labor laws. Um, that goes back to when kids used to help on the farm, you know, things like that. You know, the typical farmer the reason they had the family size that they had was labor on the farm. Um, but the key and strategy there is you don't have to pay Social Security and Medicare for your kids as a sole proprietor. So we don't have that 15.3% extra tax. Oh. If I pay the kid 12 grand for the year, they got paid 12 grand for the year, I issue a W-2 for that 12 grand. That lowers my income and moves it over to them. That could help me qualify for different credits that can help me put money into an IRA for the kid, Roth IRA in particular, at that low tax rate, 0% tax, and they can always take that principal out if they need it for school or something else in the future. Um, so 18 years, you're looking at almost, or about $100,000 that you're gonna put into that IRA over, over time. Wow. Use your kids in marketing. You pay your kids to be in marketing and ads. I have clients that use it in their real estate listings. That's their cool. website, all of the above. It's all about finding a way to be strategic and paying a reasonable amount. Obviously, you're not going to pay your kids $12,000 for one photo. <laughs> not reasonable. But there are situations where you might use it for multiple businesses, create a licensing agreement. And all you're doing is licensing their image. Ooh. Or make them file paperwork, rake leaves. Any of the above, sweep the floors. Now, as they get older, it gets easier to put them to work. But yeah. when they're younger, that's where we usually tend to look at ads and things like that. Yeah. But when it comes to, uh, you use the term reasonable amount a couple of times, first now and then in non for profit. You're not going to pay your six year old 20 bucks an hour <laughs> to sweep the floors or shred paper. So it's more like a common sense thing of like, yeah. What would you normally pay someone to do this work? Oh, so it's much like okay. a little less yeah. because you know it's not going to be sufficient. Mm. Track that their hours, sense. keep time cards. That's it. Document, oh, document, God. document. Ordinary and necessary. Those jobs are ordinary. Those jobs are necessary. The key is instead of me doing it, I have the child doing it. Absolutely. Okay, that that definitely clears it up because I was like, "No, yeah. you're you're good." Do you mind if I jump into a couple of other tax deductions though for you? Definitely. Oh, absolutely. So we talked about real estate. We talked about child labor, retirement accounts. The tax law just changed, 
So we can actually open up a solo 401k up until the due date of a tax return. That's huge, which gives us some time to plan on the back end. Yeah. You know, I got that last huge $100,000 check in December. I didn't have time to open up that retirement account. Well, now we can do that. Oh, that's amazing. It's fantastic. And one of my favorite changes. Wow. So speaking of changes, um, can you also talk about some more changes too um, after we get off the the more tax deductions? Yes. Yes, I can definitely talk talk about that. Um, Let me me jump into a little bit more on retirement accounts here. Take advantage of that. Put that money in there, put it to work, and let it grow for you. Most people are so afraid to not have access to those funds. Well, a 401k, I can borrow 50% of the balance up to $50,000. That's a great tool. I'm paying myself interest on it. Mm-hmm. I'll do it all day long. Um, so that's just another, another big item. Um, but you asked about some tax law changes. We had a couple of different acts that passed at the tail end of the year. Um, one of the big ones was called the Secure Act. Um, I have a little bit of a cheat sheet that I can pull up for you guys if you'd like. For sure. Um, but aside from that Secure Act, Congress reinstated some expired tax provisions. They backdated some of them to be applicable for the 2018 tax year. We filed 2018 tax returns in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to call that the Accountant Reemployment Act. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were a whole bunch of them. PMI was a big one. PMI was definitely a big one that happened. Um, but I have a nice lovely list that I can send. And even if you guys want to include it as a link, we, we can definitely put that together for you. Absolutely. Uh, there's there's some really cool ones out there, to be honest with you. Um, the big one, as I mentioned, was that retirement account change. Um, there's also some not so great ones. Um, inherited IRAs. So it used to be if you inherited an IRA, you could take those payments over your expected life expectancy. They changed that. Now, it is over 10 years. Done. You have to take it over 10 years. Oh, wow. Now, we had a strategy called the stretch IRA. Stretch IRA was one of my favorite things. You could fund a Roth IRA over your life or convert from 401k to your Roth, and you didn't have to take the money out. But then when your child would inherit it, they could take it out over their expected life expectancy. Yeah. Well, when they inherit it, it's a 35 or 40. Let's hope it's later than that, but knock on wood if it's that age. Their life expectancy could be quite a while. Yeah. That would give them tons of time for that money to grow because it's based on a percentage table. So it starts at about 4% that you have to take out. But if it's still growing at market rates at 8, 9, 10%, well, your balance is still going to be going up. So yeah. you come a point where, yes, you have to take big, large withdrawals of after-tax money, but it could keep growing immensely. Yeah. So the moment they changed that, I cried a little inside. Um, <laughs> we, we, we lost what was a really great planning tool to utilize. Before um, they changed that, were you able to pass down a IRA through multiple generations or was it just one generation? Technically, it went through one generation, the second generation, they, they really kind of had to start pulling it out a little bit. But what we would do is as they pull out, put that money right back into another Roth and just keep cycling. And then set up. So use it to fund your Roth 401k. It give you that extra cash flow that you would need. And it was just a great, great option. Um, they did change a couple of different things. Um, one big one is if your business has a 401k plan that covers 100 or fewer employees um, and you have an automatic contribution arrangement, um, you could get up to about a $500 tax credit for the first three years of your 401k plan. Basically, the goal was to help incentivize employers to offer 401ks and 
or um, simple plans, which yeah. is a type of IRA. Awesome. But, oh, uh, another big one. Um, have you guys heard of 529 plans? Is that the I've college? I've heard thing? of it. Yes, college savings plans. That's exactly it. Um, one big thing that they changed with 529 plans is they allowed you to start pulling out some of that money to help pay for student loans. Oh. Yes. Okay. So if you had a 529 plan, you could use it to say, okay, I need 10K to pay my student loans down by 10 grand. Just a nice, simple provision that would allow some significant savings. Absolutely. Tax money to pay down that student loan is, is significant. Mm -hmm. Definitely significant. Um, that was definitely a big one. Uh, we talked about, um, ah, big one here for you. Required minimum distributions. Okay. As I mentioned, we previously could stretch out and count, take, you know, those required minimum distributions over time. Yeah. Well, there is a counter change to that. So it used to be we had to take out a small percentage each year, but now I can actually plan to take it all in one sum. Or for those first nine years, I don't want to take anything out and wait till that 10th year. So you might edit this back the other direction here a little bit. Um, but yes, we have to take it out within 10 years but there's no requirement to start taking it out at any point in that 10 years until you have Oh, okay. That so you makes could sense. theoretically just say, you know what, I'm going to let it grow for the next 10 years and pull it out on the last day possible. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So it complements it a little bit. Not as great as it used to be over, you know, expected lifetime, yeah. but it definitely is, is a big one. For sure. Um, another big thing, if you are um, adopting or you have birth expenses, there's an exception for the 10% penalty for, for retirement distributions to help cover some of those costs. Really? That's cool. Yes. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's fantastic. So, yeah, those are a couple of the big ones. Um, we talked about RMDs. We talked about, oh, no age limit on IRA contributions. So it used to be once you hit that 72, 74 mark, you couldn't contribute to an IRA anymore. That's gone. I can be 90 years old and still contribute to a traditional IRA. Oh. Yeah, I had no idea about that. Yeah. We don't have as many people contributing at that age, but there are situations where it's still beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I could talk to you guys about tax law changes all day long. You know that. <laughs> so um, is it like, the, moving on to like the next question, um, is it better to pay quarterly or yearly when it comes to paying taxes? Okay. If you don't pay quarterly, uh, I, I'll pause and backtrack even more. Technically, the tax code says you should be paying in as you earn. That's why if you work a W-2 job, there's tax withholding throughout the year mm -hmm. on your paychecks. For self-employed individuals, it doesn't make sense to pay it every time you get a check because your expenses will vary. Mm-hmm. That's why we go to the quarterly method, which isn't fully every three months. Um, it's April, June, September, and then January 15th. Okay. I know it's a crazy schedule, but they fit in an extra payment in a certain time frame, um, fiscal year, government fiscal year. So, yes, you should technically be paying quarterly. If you don't pay quarterly or don't pay in enough, what will happen is you can have what's called an estimated tax penalty. It's usually not a significant penalty, but nobody really likes paying more on Uncle Sam than is absolutely necessary. Yeah. But I do have clients who what they actually do is choose to pay the penalty. They know I can earn 15% on this money this year. So you know what? I'm going to keep it invested and just pay the penalty if you earn. Hmm. It all depends on personal preference. Yeah. Um, but yes, if you want to avoid that penalty, I recommend quarterly payments. Some of the states are pretty harsh, so I recommend state payments. Um, Illinois is definitely one of those harsh states. Um, it, it's going to come up to your personal preference. Some people, they might have one busy quarter. So throughout the year, they don't like to make payments, and they like to make one big payment at the end. You'll have a penalty on the original, on the beginning quarters, but not on, on the very end. So okay. an ounce of planning can, can help change that a little bit. 
Um, but yes, that's definitely a big, big, big one. Big one. Okay. Just plan it out. Make an informed decision. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And with the penalty, how much would that penalty be, or does that vary a lot as well? Three percent of the unpaid amount, if I remember correctly. Oh, three percent. Not a calculation we deal with a whole lot. It's usually nominal. I see yeah. it come up to two, three hundred bucks. You know, in yeah. some cases. Largest one I've seen in the last year that I can think of was probably fifteen hundred. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean that but, that's not bad. No. no, it's not. And there's also thresholds on withholding as to how much you have to pay in in order to avoid a penalty, too. Okay. So because as long I was talking. You pay in as much as you paid the previous year, you're pretty much fine. If you're above a certain income threshold, it's actually 110% of the previous year's money. Okay. Uh, because I was talking to somebody about this, uh, I think either yesterday or a couple days ago, and I was saying, a similar thing, but I didn't know the nuances to it because I was thinking like, well, if I know if I can keep investing my money <laughs> at a decent, you know, return. Exactly. But the key is in that situation, you're making an, infor an informed decision. Mm -hmm. I don't care about the, the piddly penalty. I'd, I'd rather invest it and earn more. And that means more that you're going to pay tax on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to really wait out. And it's good to have an answer to that because I I that's I always thought yearly, but there, there's you know a little bit more to it. Uh, yeah, and, and what I usually do situation. with my clients who, who have businesses, we calculate their numbers each quarter, and then that first quarter we're going to pay only the amount that's due for that quarter, okay. based on their earnings. I'm going to annualize their earnings and assume they have no other activity. That's first quarter. Then second quarter, I'm going to do the same thing. Then third quarter, I'm going to do that same exact calculation. Mm -hmm. So that way, they're paying in tiers, and then that last payment is going to be the largest one. Now, in that case, they may have a small penalty, if any, but if their income could be all or nothing one quarter, then we're, we're going to look at what's, what's most beneficial. I have clients who might have a net profit in quarter one, a net negative in quarters two and three, and then a net profit in quarter four. Yeah. So we just align our payments with that same threshold in mind. Absolutely. So what is the, um, some really good things people can do from a state planning uh, standpoint? Because when I, when I, I was talking- I, got, I have a solution to that. <laughs> in case of emergency, I know you can't see that very well, but this oh, okay. binder in particular is designed, what if something happens? Where are they going to get that information? Who do they talk to? Where, how do you operate my business or step in if something happens? Now, I have colleagues across the country, so if something happens to me, I know my wife, one, can handle it herself, but she won't be able to handle the workload. Who can she call for help? Yeah. I, I have a plan in place. Every business should have something similar. Just a matter of who, what, where, how, and why. I'm not saying keep your business passwords in there because please don't do that. <laughs> Use it as a guideline to know who to contact, who are your major suppliers, who are your major everything. Yeah. That's what the goal is of that binder. You're similar to an employee handbook. It's your emergency survival manual, if you will. Yeah. And keep that red binder. Now, you keep, make it red for a reason. Red will stand out. So yeah. somebody will remember emergency red. That's the important part. Sure. Um, so as far as estate planning and tax purposes in particular, there's a lot of really cool things that we can do, different types of trusts we can set up. Yeah. Um, and it'll depend on industry as well. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a big trust fan. Trusts can be great. But there's something that I actually like more than that, especially for family businesses. There's what's called a family living partnership. And there's a lot of cool different things we can do with it. We can structure it. Um, oh, one big tax change that I'll mention, which is related to that. There is no more, um, the kitty tax still exists, but it's no longer at trust and estate rates, which are outlandishly high. Hmm. It's now at individual rates again. And what would a kitty, and what um, exactly was that tax? Kitty tax. Kitty tax. Kitty tax, okay. Kitty tax, which I'm, I'm going to explain what that is. So 
my son is seven. I'm in a very high tax bracket, so I don't I don't want to pay that high tax rate on those investment on my investment income. So I'm going to put it in my son's name and give some of that to him, so he can pay tax on it at his low rates. There's designated thresholds, so that way, if the investment income's over a threshold, that he then pays my rates on it. Oh, cool! And that's and that's the key. That's the kitty tax. But it used to be for one year only for literally 2018, if they had income over that threshold, it was taxed at the estate and trust rates, which if you're over $12,000 was over 35%. Jesus. Yep. Yep. It went up very quickly. Very wow. quickly. That's In case you couldn't tell, I'm a coffee addict too. Um, <laughs> but, and I talk with my hands. So having a coffee cup actually makes me yeah. talk less with my hands. Um, <laughs> But as far as estate planning goes, I would look at a family partnership if it's applicable for your situation. Yeah. It's a nice way to streamline estate plan because trusts have an expiration date. A business does not. Right. right. Are you guys familiar with the Bolton family? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think you guys have heard me say this before. Uh, <laughs> the Walton family owns Walmart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What Sam Walton did was he opened up a family partnership to help structure things to spread the income across family members. So that way it lowered their overall tax rate instead of the 94% he was paying between Fed and state taxes. Yeah, it was 94%. Mind-boggling, we're spoiled right now with how low our rates are. (laughs) So what what he did was his father-in-law had suggested it and it saved them tons and tons of money over the years. And that's why you'll actually see their net worth typically listed as the Walton family, with mm-hmm. the exception of a couple of, of them in particular. Yeah. So that vehicle allowed them to keep things in the family, perpetuate an ongoing business for the purposes of holding the family wealth, increasing the family's wealth, adding in real estate, adding in all different methods and components. So with that... Um... That type of partnership that you mentioned, that family partnership. It could be an LLC tax as a partnership. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> also, another thing I was always curious about because, and I'm probably clearly wrong on this, but um, like when I was kind of studying a little bit of state planning just so I can know what I kind of mm-hmm. want to do, um, I was told that. Um, either, you know, some type of business interest, whether it's an LLC, S-Corp, C-Corp, whatever, I uh, I was under the, the idea that they all had to pass through probate, which was the reason for a trust. Is that not the case? Not necessarily. Now, that family partnership, yes, the interest in the family partnership might pass through probate. But a family partnership, I can designate that no non-blood person of the originator can never be a shareholder. Oh. Nothing for the spouses, nothing for the others. That's one aspect in there. But the big one is I would still put those interests into a trust. So I would still use living trusts or spendthrift trusts for the various assets that are being passed through. So for my son, who's seven, I wouldn't just hand him his shares and say, here you go. I would open up a trust for him that would have ownership of those shares. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So it's, it's you pair the, fam, the, the family partnership with... No matter what you have, you pair it with the applicable trusts. But those trusts have expiration dates. So until he can handle his finances, it would remain in that trust until I chose to distribute it out of that trust. Okay. Now, in my case, my ownership shares, I would have held through typically a living trust to start out with. When I pass, it becomes a formal trust. And that trust at that point, depending on the trust instrument, will direct where the different shares or ownership will be split. Absolutely. And always have a backup plan. So what's the expiration on, like, on trust? It depends. Okay. Entirely depends on how the trust was set up. It could be an age trigger. It could be milestone triggers. I've seen all sorts of things. I've uh, seen trusts that won't distribute out until they're distributed multiple landmarks. 
So they'll get 10% of the trust value at 18, 10% at 21, and exit 33, 35, and, and so on down the line. Or even say 2% per year, which is yeah. another option. And is there a way that you can designate how the trust finances is handled? Because I've been thinking about this idea of like when there's anytime there's like equity and some type of in investment, that equity has to be reinvested, but the cash flows you can basically do anything with. Is that something that you could set yes, up? Yes, and it'll depend on what kind of trust you're using too. So a living trust is what's called a grantor trust. It's like a like a single member LLC. It's disregarded. Yeah. So I can have my single member LLC that's owned by my trust that passes through to me, and it files nothing but it's reported as a sole proprietorship. Oh, okay. So it can follow those layers and just be completely ignored and be reported right on my tax return. But the key is I can designate what's going to happen with those. And with that grantor trust, it's no different than me operating and me handling finances. I can still refinance. I can still do anything that I want. So that's why we'll usually have that LLC be titled to that living trust, of which yeah. I'm a trustee. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So I make all the decisions for it. I handle everything. So to put it in perspective, think of it like an LLC. It has its own operating operating agreement, but that's really just the trust document itself. Absolutely. That cool. simplifies it. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I, I, that's the easiest way I can simplify it. Um, I can show you on paper as well, but it, it just kind of flows. Yeah. Nice and easy. Oh, the next question we wanted to, oh, did you want to ask that one? Yeah, I'll ask it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the next question we wanted to ask is for someone that wants to um, start a tax business, like what's the first step for them to do? Like, how does that look? I love that question. <laughs> run, run far, <laughs> far away. Be self-employed, they said. You'll love it. You know, you can take time off. Um, truth be told, during tax season, I'm working 90 plus hours a week. Um, yeah, that's not a nice week. Um, I work a lot of hours. And I know a lot of things. I see different posts on Facebook and things like that. And I wonder, how is this person self-employed? The problem is there's no licensing required in most states to open up your own tax business. If you really? want to go open up a tax business, you can just say, guess what? Here's Jazz and Joe's tax, tax preparation. I would and not dare. Hang up a shingle, uh, register for prepare number, and go from there. It's terrifying. Wow. It's, isn't that scary to think about? The person who handles who can handle your largest financial transaction of the year isn't technically required to take any continuing education every year. Wow. Which is why I typically point people to a CPA, an enrolled agent like myself and my wife, or an attorney. Those are the three people that can represent you in front of the IRS. And we're required to have continuing education. Yeah. Now, as far as starting your own tax business. Oh, education. I recommend working for someone for a while to get some experience. Yeah. Because the hardest thing in my business is not the things that I know or that I know a little bit about. It's the things that I don't know and being able to recognize that. Because hmm. if you don't know that it's an issue until you find out that it's an issue, you can have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, a basic tax class is not enough to prepare you. Um, I'll be honest, over the years, I've struggled in hiring staff. I needed staff members probably three years ago. And the key was trying to find someone qualified to handle the types of transactions that I do. I handle some of the most complex transactions you'll see. Different trusts, I deal with different real estate investments, closings, closings where people are taking cash home off the front. It's, it, it's not a simple yeah. AD transaction. Yeah. So... It depends on what they want. If they want to do basic 1040s, yeah, that's easy. Um, quite often, I'll have somebody who comes, comes in and reaches out to me and they just have a basic 1040. I'll, I'll typically point them towards, you know, a basic software, et cetera, rather than, you know, work, work at my fees. Um, 
it just makes more sense for them. Yeah. So as far as starting a tax business, education is the number one thing because it's scary the things that you don't know or the bad information you could even get from other preparers. Yeah, um, for sure. It, the business is rough. I, I have people who argue with me because their hairstylist said they could deduct something. <laughs> it blows my mind it blows my mind um i'm not going to point fingers but real estate agents are the worst about it really oh the bad advice that i hear i still have somebody telling talking about first-time home buyer credits i don't even know just a couple of weeks ago somebody was talking about it. that expired a long time ago okay a long time ago and an agent still spouting off about you know, uh, federal first-time home buyer, right? Hmm. Under tax return. It kills me. Pings me inside. Wow. Pings me inside. So we spend a lot of time combating incorrect information, a lot of time planning. Um, the hard part is, honestly, giving people correct advice and weeding through what their questions might actually be and saying, here's what you want to do and here's what you should do. So yeah, the, the first step would honestly be a basic tax class. Then from there, work for somebody for a while. Yeah. Work for somebody for a while, whether it starts as administrative, get some experience, get some knowledge around both the bookkeeping and the tax side of things. Because the tax law is huge and it's ever-changing. Accountants yeah, yeah. don't like change. The reason we don't like change is because we're always dealing with it in the tax code. <laughs> By the way, have you guys seen my uh, biography? No, I haven't. Oh man, you haven't seen the account movie? They had a whole movie about me. Oh wait, wait, are you talking about with Ben Affleck? No, I gotta watch I, it. I, I, every accountant dreams and, and and wishes that was that was their real life. Right. Um. Uh, truth be told, I spend you know 14 plus hours a day in my office, on the phone most of the time, working on tax returns in front of the computer, and sometimes it hurts to stand up. Mm. Well, be prepared to work hard. Very hard, very hard. And the hard part for a lot of people is asking for help and accepting that you may not hear what you want to hear. You guys heard me talk about it probably the first time we met. I said I don't sugarcoat things. I don't like it is. Oh no. My clients don't hire me to coddle them. They hire me for the brutal truth. Tears happen. <laughs> they do, but because somebody thought something was one way and they didn't ask for advice. Yeah. So the biggest thing is be there, be active, educate yourself, give good information so you don't end up hurting the client at the end of the day. For yeah. sure. Yeah. They'll get over the tears, but yeah. you don't want to cost them money. Yeah, because they might not get over that. So did that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, yeah it, it definitely did. Um, did. I think that it would make someone kind of second guess whether they really want to have a tax business because, you know, some people just think of businesses as like, oh, I'm just going to start a business, but they don't think about how There's much. There's so much to know. There's so much yeah. to do. I don't outsource tax returns. I don't do things like that. We keep them in-house. I know of firms that outsource to India. Mm. Yeah, and there's all sorts of disclosures that are required for that. And wow. yeah, that's the heck no. Um, but yes, there, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of different things involved. I love what I do. I really do. I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, I also do a lot of audit representation work. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. I have 25 to 50 open audit cases at any given time. And those were all prepared for the most part using TurboTax. Which is why I don't use TurboTax. And you'd be shocked at the things that I see. Shocked at the things that I see. That's crazy. But I was told I could deduct my business suits. <laughs> no, you cannot. Let me know I when that changes, somebody, though. I saw somebody try to write off Armani shirts. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. I've seen crazy things. Now, and this is why it's so important to 
to keep in contact with you know your your accountants everyone that's listening um so how often do you think that someone needs to um like reach out to their accountant it depends it entirely depends i have clients who i hear from almost every week and i have clients who i hear from once or twice a year they we hop on a call review over the tax return they ask me a couple of questions for that year and I might get a, have a 15 minute phone call with them or an email from them later in the year. Some of them are simple and easy. Others, they have a lot of different transactions going on. So I am more involved in, in their day to day. So the real answer is it depends. And you're gonna hear me say that a lot in tax so in general. Um, it depends on facts and circumstances. But yes, we, we spend a lot of time planning, organizing. So I have a digital calendar. I think you guys have seen it already. That calendar allows my clients to just schedule a time in a whim, you know, a 15-minute phone call. Oh, cool. He's free on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Perfect. You know, plug it in time. That way, I can answer their questions instead of worrying about are they getting information. I have a newsletter that goes out weekly and monthly. You know, so I am reaching out throughout the year with, with information, contact. Sometimes they'll reply back with a quick question or clarification on something. And, and that's it. Some people, hey, I'm thinking about buying a house. Can you run over these numbers with me? Make sure I'm working at them right. Sure, not a problem. So the good account is accessible to the client. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you can get good advice when you need it. Now I'm going to tell you tax season is a little harder. That's just the nature of tax season. Yeah. But we do keep times on our calendar for when someone does need, need that kind of help. When it comes to the Armani suits, what about if they have a logo? <laughs> Ordinary and necessary. Okay. Ordinary and necessary. Um, different things as part of a uniform, such as logo shirts, etc., that can be considered part of a uniform. Oh, an average Armani shirt, that's not necessarily ordinary and necessary. <laughs> no, not, not no. ordinary and necessary. Uh, Just have to make sure. <laughs> but if your uniform is a polo with the company logo, that could be the uniform. Yeah. But I like to point out safety equipment and things like that is a really big one. Oh, yeah, for sure. So what is the number one takeaway you would like somebody to really get from this podcast episode? Can I give you two? Yes, yeah. give me two. Perfect. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Cure. And expand on that a little bit. Which Ask the question before it happens. Once the transaction is done, I can't go and change it. Yeah. That's the question. Number two. Number two is one of one of my favorites here. Ask the question. Ask the question. There is no such thing as a dumb question. Ask it. Get an informed answer rather than trying to fly solo. If yeah. you have a business, if you have rental property, if you have foreign investments, you need to be consulting with an accountant. Even if you DIY your tax return, engage in a consultation and get information. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you can make sure that you're doing things correctly. Yeah. Laws change. I see professionals who mess those things up. I just talked to somebody about cost segregation the other day, a fellow professional, and they their mind was blown. They spent the entire next weekend just pondering what I had said, and they didn't they didn't realize that that was a tax strategy they could have utilized. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I didn't tell you guys that. I teach a lot of continuing education. Absolutely. That's really cool, too, in itself. I want to use the accountant that's teaching the other accountants. That's, right. that's really cool. um, I teach everything from self-directed retirement accounts, rental property, audit classes, you name it. That's really cool. Yeah, that's so, and, I, and, I do, and I do like what you said about uh, just asking the question, because I feel like so many people underestimate that. You know, that, this, I mean, this part of the I reason... Did. 
<laughs> yeah, this is part of the reason we have a podcast because I can ask ridiculous questions. I don't have to worry about my uh, guests really judging me. You haven't thrown anything ridiculous at me yet, so. <laughs> oh, it, oh, it's coming. I'll figure it out. Right. I'll figure it out. It's like do. our way to trap you guys into answering our questions like for free. <laughs> hey, I get it. I get it entirely. Um, there was a commercial during the Super Bowl. Um, TurboTax posted, all people are tax people. You couldn't have been talking about me. I'm getting heartburn just thinking about it. Um, TurboTax is great if you understand the law and how to answer the questions. Yeah. Some people who can answer the question once a year, that's fine and dandy. But the problem is when you have a ton of different transactions, yeah. you have to be able to plan. You have to be able to be active. Yeah. You, asking the box is not okay. Yeah. It's not going to be much. that answer. Yeah, it's way too much. Yeah. So whether it be... And if you do in, use TurboTax, by the way, make sure you purchase the audit defense. Oh, okay. If I use it. I don't think we use... We don't use it, do we? No, we don't, don't think, use it. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I don't <laughs> worry about that. But yeah, if one of our listeners do use that, purchase the auto, uh, yes. audit defense. Those guys are great. Oh, that's cool. That's good to know. So... When it comes to either your business or your personal life, uh, what are the areas of life that you're abundant in that you like to spread to other individuals, whether they be in your family and your community or even your customers? How do you spread abundance? I, I actually love that question. Um, how do I spread abundance? Oh, I work a lot. I think I told you guys that already. <laughs> yeah, um, you do. I enjoy alleviating people's fears about the IRS. Some days I feel like I'm a counselor. Seriously. When you get people talking about their finances, they will tell you just about anything, including things I don't want to hear. Most married couples won't talk about money together. So if you can get them talking about their finances, how they spend money, how to plan, you can put them into such a better position. Now, a client that I had in a very, a very, since I started in the business, for the most part, I watched them grow. And I mean grow. Um, from that couple who was living paycheck to paycheck, had a ton of credit card debt. And now they're at a point where they now have a bunch of children. Um, they have expanded and grown as individuals and i've been able to watch and help coach them from that paycheck to paycheck struggle to financial freedom and that's one of the things that i love about my job because i get to help people keep their money Mm -hmm. save money plan for the future and i get to watch and help families grow that's what I love about it. So when you talk about abundance, there's both a financial and a mental abundance in there. And that's the one everybody tends to forget about, peace of mind. For sure. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So for the person that they they think you're awesome, they think you're like hilarious, and they also think you're very knowledgeable, how can they get into contact with you? Okay, this is really easy. My website is hamiltontax.net. And if you type it in .com, it'll still come to me anyway. Um, It's the order that came available. Um, (laughs) Our phone number is 224-381-2660. You can reach us by email. You can reach us on Facebook, Hamilton Tax and Accounting. We have an office in Illinois. We have an office in Florida. And the wife and I are able to bounce back and forth. She's originally from down there. She kept her practice. And there's a million and one different ways to get a hold of us. Facebook, Twitter, email, you name it. And they're extremely responsive. So, yeah. Our auto reply is a link right to our calendar. So someone can schedule a consultation right there. Or they can call into the office and, and schedule something. Absolutely. 
Awesome. So this episode was great. And it was so, so knowledgeable. Like we probably could have went like hours, honestly, on this whole podcast. Yeah, easily. <laughs> if you guys think of any other topics, let me know. I'm more than happy to expand in certain niches if you'd like. For sure. Awesome. Definitely. Yeah, you'll definitely be on the podcast again. I should also plug something to let you guys know that I actually have a book that should be coming out later this year. It's directed at doctors um, in tax planning. Nice. Yeah, I actually have a friend that, oh yeah, he invested in like some syndication and his wife is a doctor. So yeah, we'll definitely be uh, talking about that. I'm sure there's we'll some doctors on, on the podcast listening. There's yeah, all definitely. sorts of planning that can be done. All sorts Absolutely. of planning that can be done. So, awesome. For sure. So thank, thank you. you again. If you guys need anything at all, just let me know. So that's all we have for today, folks. I hope you got as much value out of this as we did. Keep in mind, the only way we can improve is through constructive feedback. So remember to rate and review this episode. Also, you are not the only person that needs to know this super valuable information. So be sure to subscribe and share as well. Stay tuned for the next episode. And remember to always spread abundance. Peace.